Yo, 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 what's up, what's up? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to anybody that's listening to The Recipe Menu Mondays with Coach Chef Dre Blast. want to welcome you to episode number four. It's hard to believe we've been doing this for a month now. Four episodes in. And I'm just flat out excited to be here. Glad that you're tuning in. I'm seeing the numbers going up, seeing more people following the incredible information that's going on. And, you know, I handle recipes just a little bit different than most people um, in, in, in this business because we talk a little bit more about, you know, the health of the body of what you consume and also the wealth of your body um, and closing that gap between health and wealth. And <clears throat> had an incredible opportunity to learn some some great things, you know, over the years and over the weekend and, um, you know, being a chef that competes and chef owning a catering company and have an opportunity to be in corporate America. I've worked from fast food all the way to fine dining. I got to see some different things in the industry um, that that um, have always been on my mind and always been something that I wanted to, you know, discuss. And there there in it is a podcast. So and also as a uh, inspirational and motivational coach, um, this is the format that I use to teach people, um, you know, the recipe to achieve anything in life and live on purpose, not just with purpose, but live on purpose, because many of us are just living you know, we're not doing anything with a divine purpose and we're just taking every opportunity as it comes along, as opposed to taking opportunities that keeps us focused on our purpose, right? So um just excited for you to be here today. We're going to go ahead and jump into it. But before we do, you know, I always have a sponsor for each show. So if you're listening out there and you want to be one of the featured sponsors on the show, just let me know. I would definitely get you on. But today's commercial, today's the recipe menu Monday with Coach Andre and Chef Andre Blasting Game is sponsored by Mindful Eating for the Beloved Community. Mindful Eating for the Beloved Community, also known as MEBC. You can find it at loveisfood.org, loveisfood.org. Org is a national platform to promote awareness and inspire dialogue about the past and present impact of food in our lives, a healthy and whole body, mind and spirit led to increase productivity, better homework environments, home work environments, and increase morale for people of all ages. Food is a powerful force in healing and bringing people from all backgrounds together for the common good of the beloved community. Now, Mindful Eating for the Beloved Community has a book that's out, and it offers strategies to strengthen connections between diet, culture, faith, the environment, and community well-being with a focus on mindful eating, racial justice, and sustainability. The book is written by a diverse group of chefs, nutritionists, and food health activists from multiple regions in the United States. Now, you can purchase a copy of this book at Amazon.com under Mindful Eating for the Beloved Community. Once again, purchase your copy of Mindful Eating for the Beloved Community at Amazon.com. And remember, your health is your wealth. All right. Appreciate you, uh, uh, MEBC. I am not only an active member, you know, I've read the book several times. And uh, one of the concepts that was in the book 
that I actually got from the book. I'm not going to say it was in the book, something that I thought of as being a chef. Um, when you really think about what you're consuming in your body and what you're eating, um, you know, on a regular basis, you want to look at um, how that process is going. If, in, in many Northern, actually many African cultures, they eat food with their hands because it is the, the, the perception of the feel part of food you know, makes it a little bit more important and it makes it better for the body. And so I always implore people, I said, if you, if you want to really know the difference between, you know, enjoying your food and enjoying your food, take an apple or whatever your favorite fruit is and get a knife and cut it up into sections, right? And then pick it up with a fork and eat it. Then I want you to take that same fruit um, you know, if you got to peel it, make sure you peel it. We won't eat nothing poisonous out there, but just take that same fruit. I always use an apple as an analogy. Pick that fruit up and bite into it. You know, it's totally different experience for the mind. It's a total different wake up call for the mind. It sometimes it'll bring back old memories of when you were, you know, kids and some of us that lived in the country and some of us grew up in the city. Most of us all had access to apples, not everybody, but most of us did. And we can remember grabbing an apple and, you know, maybe washing it under, under the, the hose that's outside, wiping it on your shirt even, and then biting into it and just remembering how juicy and how, how much it was great, you know, just to have it, to bite into it. And as we get, you know, older and get a little bit more uh, civilized, if you will, a little bit more refined, take some etiquette classes. Of course, you know, you no longer pick up the food with your hands. You use a fork and a knife, you know. And so sometimes we get away from the endorphins that that causes uh, uh, to bring us joy, right? To bring us some 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 happiness. So, you know, it's, it's, it's important that you be mindful of that. So you definitely check out mindful eating for the beloved community, you know, over there, but we're going to go ahead and, and, and continue the conversation from last week. Um, last week, uh, of course, you know, I had, I had my boy, my boy, Kenny, my Kenny on the line and also Colette. And I believe Colette is joining us again today. Um, I, I was excited to have both of them sit in you know, on this particular topic, because um, between our difference in ages, they had a different perception and a different background and a different overall view of closing this, 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 this wealth gap and this health, this health gap, especially in the black community with um, people, black, black owned businesses that are chains, right? And I did a little bit of research on, and, and there's a few black owned restaurants out there that are chains, but there's one that I knew about that didn't come to me last week, but came to me during this week. Um, and it's out of California, uh, ironically, uh, Fat Burger, right? So if anybody knows anything about Fat Burger, a lot of people don't know that Fat Burger is black owned. You know, uh, it was founded in 1942 by a young lady by the name of Lovey Yancey. Uh, she originally called it Mr. Fat Burger, but when her and her business partner, you know, split up, she dropped the Mr. Part and just made it Fat Burger. Of course, you know what it would be for a woman in the, you know, in the 50s and 60s trying to open up a, you know, a hamburger stand on the side of the road. Um, she she can't let anybody know she was black for it to be profitable, right? And so uh, even though she passed away in 2008, she is now in 15 countries and has 79 stores. But she is one of one if you will. There's a few other black owned 
chains. Now, I want you to understand the difference between the chain and franchise because I know everybody's listening. Like, oh, my God, Rick Ross owns nine, you know, wing stops and, you know, uh, Shaq and Magic Johnson. They own, you know, 50 of these restaurants. I said, OK, those are franchises. That means they bought somebody else's idea and they're profitable. There's nothing wrong with that uh, for people with quite a bit of money. That's actually more way to get more cash flow. Um, because they buy a turnkey business, all they have to do is put the bodies in and follow the system for their success. But we're talking about ones that were created by 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 the hands of the BIPOC community, people of color, and actually built up into a chain. And we were having a conversation as to why isn't there more? And it's the support of each other in the black community. It was incredible. You know, I got an opportunity. I always wanted to go to Fat Burger, so I went to Fat Burger when I was in California you know, many, many years ago. And um, it was like, this is so cool because this is created by, you know, a person of color. And there's, you know, quite a few of these locations that you go to. There's actually one here in Texas now that's owned by um, a, a black, uh, a black lady. And I got an opportunity to go out there with my daughter and meet her. And, you know, it was just nostalgic, even though I didn't know who Lovey Yancey was. But it was just incredible to have that. So we're going to continue our conversation on on that, you know, going back into closing that 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 wealth gap. And why aren't there more? Because there should be more lovey Yancey's out there. There should be more black owned businesses that can be franchised. Right. Why? Why have we been denied the opportunity to do the same thing as McDonald's and In-N-Out? Um, Brinker International, what's some other big ones out there? Um, you know, when, when you look at Cheddar's and, and and Chili's, well, Chili's is owned by Brinker International, but we don't get that opportunity to have our stuff started because most of the time the capital isn't there because the community don't come together. And in addition to that, somebody who's a little bit more savvy or has a little bit more capital get it from right under us, um, you know, Glad do you have you heard the story of famous Amos before? I'm sure you have the famous Amos cookies. So um yes, famous so, Amos was in California and he left California and went to Hawaii. And he stayed in Hawaii for a period of time. I don't know what's going on now, but his original store was on Sunset Boulevard. And he decided to, I don't remember if he franchised. In fact, when I was in business back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and and up to 2001, Famous Amos was right alongside. In fact, back then, you could depend on Black businesses, but all of those businesses have gone by the wayside. And I believe Famous Amos is one of those that that has gone by the wayside. He sold out. He sold out. Now, if you have something different to add to that, please be sure, because I don't know anything beyond the 90s about him. I do. Now, we may be talking about two different Famous Amoses, right? You're probably talking about the Famous Amos restaurant. No. It used to be in Florida, or you're talking about the cookie Famous Amos, the right? Cookies. Yes. Yeah. So... If you really know the story of of, of famous Amos Cookies, uh, most people would consider him to to have sold out, if you will. But the true story behind it was is that he got swindled out of his name and right and was unable to expand. 
I do remember so, that. Yes. Right. And so that was one of the things that was interesting because he came up with the cookie idea. He came up with the name. He came up with the recipe. He began selling it. And the person he was partners with at the time had him sign a contract that actually gave up all his rights, privileges, mm-hmm. et cetera, to the name famous Amos, the recipe, yes. which I yes. still to this day don't know how they patent the recipe, but uh, uh, the recipe and all the rights to it. And so Famous Amos still being sold today, it's owned by, you know, someone that's not of color because um, because of the lack of education that happened. And see, that's where that wealth gap is a problem because if somebody, if somebody from the black community that was profitable back in the 60s and 70s when Famous Amos was doing this with his cookies, somebody, a black lawyer could have educated him on, uh, have somebody else read your contract before you pass it up. Mm-hmm. The famous Amos family is not even reaping any benefits at all because he sold when he, when, when they gave him a check, it was almost similar to the story of the McDonald brothers. You know, they didn't understand business. They had a little too much pride to go ask. And anybody with knowledge didn't tell them that you're giving up the rights to your yes. company. Yeah. Well, when he did that, I want to say that was in the late 80s, early 90s. He then left California and went to Hawaii because he was told that he could get his cookie business back by going to Hawaii because he was not on U.S. soil at that time. He could go to Hawaii and start all over again. In fact, I believe I had at least one conversation with him, and that was what he told me. He was going to Hawaii, but it, that's been that was a long time ago. Things have changed drastically. I don't know if he's still around. Same thing happened in the music industry. Uh, people selling their rights, not understanding that they wouldn't be getting royalties and things like that on their music. And the biggest case was uh, Benny King for Stand By Me. He sold the rights to that very early on. And all this time, all these years, stand by me getting uh, played, his estate gets nothing. And remember, right after Michael Jackson had the trial, that trial that he molested all of these children, he slept in a bed with children who went out to Neverland and blah, blah. Right. He was forced to leave the country. He was forced to leave the country practically penniless. And he said at that time, he would never come back to this country and do anything. Well, he had to fast forward. And that's when the last album came out or he was working on the last album and he was forced to come back and begin work on that album. I can't remember the name of it, but the one that he was working on during the time of his demise. And he was practically penniless. So in order for him to, to have more money, to make more money, because he was under such scrutiny, he had to come back here. But it was years before he came back. And they wanted to take everything away from him. That's mm-hmm. part of the reason why there was such a scandal about what was going on and why he left the country, why he didn't want to come back. He said he would never perform in this country <coughs> again. So there were and have been issues. One of the things that I didn't mention the other day was, uh, oh God, lost it that quick. 
Roscoe's. Yes. House of Chicken Chicken and Waffles. Yes. Roscoe's. And Roscoe's is black owned and operated. However, most of the folks that work in the back, behind the door, in the kitchen, Mm -hmm. most of them, not 100% all of them, most of them are Hispanic. And I mentioned to you Delicious on Crenshaw and Lemurk. Mm-hmm. All Hispanic, all Hispanic. And one of the things that we fail to do in business is one, everybody's supposed to be, I don't know, everybody has an opportunity to be a Benin man. Everybody want to be a Benin man. Everybody can't be. <laughs> Benin man, B-I-B-I-D. Yeah, Benin man. Everybody man. Be a Benin man. Yeah. <laughs> everybody can't be. Everybody right. cannot be. And I started in business in 1974. Then we opened up another one in 1979. Then we moved again, changed the name and opened in 1984. And that one finally closed the doors in 19, I'm sorry, in 2001. Business today is very different from business back then. And it's not that long ago. Oh, yeah, it's completely different. Oh, we have to come back and talk about that one. It's yeah, completely it's different. Completely different. In fact, it, business is probably not even spelled the same way because nope. it's entirely different. It's entirely different. And it should not be. Right. And the reason that I say that is because I'm from back then and I can tell you how successful and profitable businesses were then in comparison to today. And there will be those that argue businesses, Black businesses are better today. Just as George Frazier has stated, there are 240,000 hair shops, beauty salons in the community, all over Mm -hmm. this country, 240,000. There are five Black banks, and I can't even name them all. I can't name five, but there are five somewhere. There are three, four... Black owned and operated film companies. Kevin Hart mm-hmm. just expanded his today. And in, in that business, there's only Oprah, there's Tyler Perry. Now there's Kevin Hart, uh, Alan Media, who is the Grio, and there's one other. But when it comes to operating businesses, everybody can be a business person. Everybody ain't a business person. No, and it's not designed for everybody. It I mean, is I, not designed for everybody. No. I tell everybody all the time. I said, you know, entrepreneurship is hard. You know, you're going to make a lot it of sacrifices is. in it building is. any business, even if you buy a franchise or you start something from the ground up. Um, you're going to piss some people off. You're going to make people upset. You're going to have some family members that are going to think you're, you know, out of your mind. You're going to have some people that's going to support you. And have some people that's going to tell you to keep going. You're right. going to have some people that's going to see the vision as asinine and uh, un- unattainable. You know, but what's going on with the black community now and what I've been telling people, especially from my era generation being, um, you know, a late 70s, 80s baby, is that my, my generation is closing the gap. Right. Because previous we had people that would be classified as millionaires now. Right. They weren't necessarily millionaires then. But if you if you equal the money between now and then. You know, some of the black people were millionaires that were 
that were back in, you know, in the 20s, 30s and 40s. And see, we just have not had enough people, uh, enough people of color that have had money to teach the previous generations. And my generation comes from the old school and the new school. I remember, you know, uh, the, the digital answer machine that had the tape in it. I remember eight track tapes, right? I remember, uh, um, you know, uh, color TVs was only for people that could afford it. You know, uh, everybody had a black and white, but the color TV was 50, 60, 70. You know, it was just that mm-hmm. much more to have it. Mm-hmm. And this generation now has figured out one, how to make money and do it quickly. But what happens is, is that no one taught us how to manage that money. And no one taught us how to, where to put the right investments, where to, how to reinvest in the block. Cause I know nobody taught us, Hey, you know what? Once you get that money, why don't you buy a house in the neighborhood? No, they don't do that. They say, once you get the money, you know, get out of the neighborhood. Don't buy anything over here. Spend your money, go buy your gold chain. You know, things of that nature. And let me, let me qualify and quantify some of that. And in doing those things, please remember that the millennials, the Gen Xers told us that they were smarter. We were always upfront with the generations. And we were told because of technology, those generation, those generations were smarter because of technology, because technology has created such a wide array of avenues for people to communicate, to conduct business, but it did not allow people to be real people, to operate with integrity. Mm -hmm. So communication became the way you did things. When I was in business, there wasn't a day that I did not meet with my clients. I had clients and customers, but most of them were clients. In 1992, there was the big riot. In 1993, Rebuild LA began. In in May, June, July of 1993, I was awarded a million-dollar business project. And that $1 million business project was to turn my company into a label manufacturing company. There's no way it would be done today. And I have reached out to Goldman Sachs. I've reached out to Beyonce and the NAACP, Jay-Z and all of his cronies and the people who are doling out money. And for people today to give 5,000, 10,000, 25,000, for people to give that money today or grant that money today, for some people, that's a lot of money. It ain't. Don't be fooled. (laughs) I received a $1 million mentor-protege business project. And it was not just a business project in name only. It came with a plethora of elements, such as my attorneys were the international attorneys, Latham and Watkins. They did all my work, Latham and Watkins. Black folks cannot afford Latham and Watkins. There's something like $500,000 an hour. I had the best that Avery had. They gave me everything that they had. 
I had a girl Friday. Her name was Debbie. I had everything given to us, a Webtron, which is as long as some blocks. We had a, a uh, hand truck, the truck that you drive that lists forklift. Uh-huh. We had substrates. We were given over a thousand dyes. Any label on the planet, we could make that label. There are no black folks that make labels today. I became the only black woman in America to manufacture labels. But, You're listening to history now, people. I hope y'all paying attention to this. But, Say that one more time. Say it one more time. <laughs> history is important. See, it's this is true. something I didn't know about you. Yeah. We've been talking about business and in, in, in the radio industry. So yeah. you didn't tell me this. I was the Say that only one more time. in America that could actually manufacture labels. I had a label. That's powerful. And That's powerful. labels, manufacturing labels is not glamorous. It doesn't get you on BET. It doesn't get you on the Image Awards. So today, those are the things that matter to Black folks. Those are the things that really matter, such as Megan and whatever her name is. She went to Texas Southern University. She went to several community colleges. She's also claimed to have been a student at USC. And now she is a girl who's so vulgar, it's hard for me to even think about it. Okay, that's not what we did back then. We did not sell our souls for 50 cents. We didn't do that. Oh, let's talk about that when we come back. (laughs) Selling our souls for pennies on the dollar, 50 cent. Man. So we're going to take a, so for my people listening, we're going to take a quick break. I want you to hear a little bit more about some of my uh, fellow podcasters that's on the Intentional Talk Radio Network. Learn a little bit more about the network. And uh, make sure you follow, like, subscribe, you know, and you can find us anywhere that you listen to the podcast, but you can always come back here. Okay. So take a quick break. Intentional Talk Radio Network. Colette Williams from Change Matters. Have you ever thought about hearing your voice in lights? Well, what I mean is on radio with thousands and thousands of people listening. Well, now is your chance. You can join us here at Intentional Talk Radio by hosting your own show. Bring your friends and your family. You might become the next Tom Joyner or The Breakfast Club. Call us. Drop us a line. Let's make it happen. That's Intentional Talk Radio Network. 214-919-5605. Or drop us a line at changematters99 at gmail.com. That's changematters99 at gmail.com. See you then.
Are you looking for somewhere to shop, for entertainment, or for your dining pleasure? Baldwin Hills Crenshaw Plaza is the place you want to go, located in the heart of the community, on Crenshaw and Martin Luther King Boulevard. The Baldwin Hills Crenshaw Plaza has 134 shops to serve you. The new hours are 11 a.m. to 7 p.m., Monday through Saturday, and Sunday, 12 noon to 6 p.m. If you're looking for a community restaurant, try the Post and Bean or the Kick and Crab. And don't go too far. Baldwin Hills Crenshaw Plaza has the Cinemark Theater with current movies. And don't forget the Great Farmer's Market. Every Saturday, 10 a.m. till 3 p.m., rain or shine. The mall also has great attractions and entertainment. The African American Museum and the Debbie Allen Dance Studio, Wells Fargo Bank, and Bank of America. Don't forget Baldwin Hills Crenshaw Plaza. You can find us on Facebook at Baldwin Hills Crenshaw Plaza or on Instagram at hashtag Baldwin Hills Crenshaw Plaza, Twitter, YouTube, and Pinterest. Good afternoon, good afternoon, and thank you for joining us. This is Menu Mondays, The Recipe with Chef Andre Blasingame. It's time to come on back and continue that discussion, Andre. Outstanding. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. So, uh, for y'all that didn't listen to the first half, we're going to give you a short recap. We're talking about closing the the wealth gap um, in the black and brown community. Um, and what has happened over the years is that we're just now as black people coming into a sense of money, uh, having some billionaires and some positions to make some changes and decisions, um, you know, going forward, especially here in the United States. And, uh, you know, Colette was talking about, uh, you know, people that are now uh, uh, selling their soul for 50 cent. I thought that was so funny because the first person I thought about was 50 cent himself. Shout out to 50. <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, because at, at, at one point there, there's something in the music industry um, that Jay-Z put in a song, you know, you, you, you still taking advances, right. And you still selling your soul out for the industry. And it was funny that you said that you said that in, in, in that phrase, because oftentimes um, we do do that. Um, people will, will sell their soul for pennies on the dollar just because they want to have more right now, as opposed to wanting to build a legacy. Um I'm I'm in a cohort for um with 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 the Hilton with the Hilton uh company and in this cohort as a chef we're learning about communities um food deserts and food swamps right food desert of course is the lack of food food swamps means oversaturated in certain areas and one of the things that we talk about in there is that very thing about the wealth gap and how people will sell them, sell their soul for so little. They'll do so little and give away their namesake just because it's what's popular or what's going to get them paid. It's, it's interesting because <laughs> that conversation is mostly about food, right? That conversation is mostly about how do we bring systemic change in the in the food space and we got on the conversation of leadership and in that leadership we were talking about people that have sold themselves out you know or people that say they're for the cause but you never see them fighting for it they may be a person of color and could be on tv all the time we mainly was talking to our celebrity chefs 
And I'm going to ruffle some feathers with these celebrity chefs because, you know, I'm going to put you on blast as far as what you're doing for your people or people in general or just for humankind besides cooking. You know, it's incredible to be a chef and make a great meal, but um, your platform should be used to actually make a change. But if it's not your thing, it's not your thing. So we got chefs to sell themselves out, you know, for the dollar as opposed to standing up for people of color, accepting whatever is given to them by the network or told to them by the network to build. So I want to talk a little bit more about, you know, collect some stories that you may have had of, you know, people in, in your industry along the lines that, that, you know, that, you know, took the 50 cents and sold themselves short, you know, not like a famous Amos where if you really look at it, cause he's still in Hawaii doing this thing, according to, you know, according to the research, but um, you know, his name was more or less stolen because of lack of knowledge, mm-hmm. you know, he wasn't a, he, he, in my opinion, as far as business, I don't consider him to be a sellout, but what I do consider him to do, he's he sold out to himself by not seeking the knowledge because he can't even use his name to this day. Right. Oh, fine. And, and so you know, go ahead. Yes, go ahead. So, yeah, cause I was just going to say that I was like, you know what? It, it, it makes him a sellout a little differently. He didn't sell out his people. He sold out himself because he didn't take the time to research it. And it's one of the things that I teach, um, you know, every second Thursday or every, twice a month on Thursday, I have a free masterclass where I teach uh, people about the four areas um, to, to achieve anything and live life on purpose. Right. And one of those four is knowledge applied because <clears throat> as I tell people all the time, you know, if you could have the knowledge, but if you never use it, it's just knowledge. It doesn't become powerful until you apply it. And see, famous Amos, he never s- took the time to seek the knowledge um, from anybody, in my opinion, because nobody would have, uh, nobody would allow him to sign his name away, his name away for, you know, even if they gave him a hundred million dollars, you can never use that famous Amos name again. And the company is now worth $1.4 billion and Kellogg is looking to sell it. Wow. So lack of knowledge can kill you. That's why, you know, you got to learn what it is for your business. Like Kellogg owns the rights to famous Amos cookies Mm -hmm. and it's worth $1.4 billion right now. Oh my God. And it's gone because he didn't have the knowledge or nobody that knew about business you know, told him what he needed to do. He got swindled, you know? He did get swindled. And one of the things that took place decades ago, during the time that I was in business, we were always afforded an opportunity to learn. I have, I cannot speak to what happened with Famous Amos. I used to know his name, but we were always afforded an opportunity to learn. In fact, I've taken Harvard business classes Dartmouth University classes, uh, and anybody else that was offering classes to business owners, I took those classes. So the Harvard business class took place in 2000, and it was about how business was going to be conducted after 2000. That was a $5,000 class. It lasted Mm. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I was afforded an opportunity to do that. I was afforded another opportunity to take a class at that was given by Dartmouth University. I don't see universities coming in teaching the community or people in business. I see people holding uh, 
classes on tech. I see people holding classes on some things, but not all things. I don't mm-hmm. see universities coming into communities, business communities, and offering classes. One of the things that I did as a recipient of this million dollar Avery project was I was afforded opportunities to go a lot of places, learn a lot of things, lots, every day, plus work every day. And I did that. I don't see the same thing. Right now, I'm in the Goldman Sachs event or or their initiative. One, what is it? Uh, 10, 1 million women, they've put up $10 billion. 10 million women over a 10-year period. And one of the things that happens is that peers teach peers. And that's okay up to a certain point. Up to a certain point. So mm-hmm. the other thing that I see is I see that baby boomers in some ways are left out because we're thought of as antiquated or elders or things are different. That was back then. It has no relationship to today. So baby boomers, such as myself, we're left out. We're not invited to the party because the party is not necessarily for us. You had your chance. It was your turn. Then it isn't today. So unfortunately, we are at a point where we're not, we're going to have to make some very serious changes and choices to keep our community from crumbling. One of the things that we talked about, not simply how we're doing as a community, but if Forbes is writing about what's going to happen with the Black community as it relates to finances, whether it is in the food industry, any industry, by 2053, it's been reported that the Black community will have zero, zero in the economic realm. And they've since moved it up. By 2033, we will be zero in terms of our economics. We don't have it now. So where else can we go? So where else can we go? And if, if Forbes is writing, if Forbes is publishing this information, how come we're not scared doing something? How come we're not out banging on doors? Why are we not changing the course? Well, I'll answer that real quickly. How many black people read Forbes? Yeah, that's why it's in print in Forbes. <laughs> that's why it's in Forbes. Because see, they, they're not going to put it in, in, in a publication or put it in a place, you know, where we would readily see it. Somebody like you and I would have to see it. And of course, post it on our pages and things of that nature. Because I remember that article you talked about reading in Forbes, because it also talked about, you know, the 400 richest American billionaires have more total wealth than all 10 million black American households combined. So we've got 400 billionaires in this country currently that are not people of color that have more money than the 10 million black families that are here currently. Isn't that pathetic? So when, when, when I, when I teach and tell people about the wealth gap, we don't have skin in the game. We don't have the equity. And in 10 years, 
10 to 15 years, we're going to lose that equity because we don't know how to shut up and work together. We don't know how to go back and buy the block. It was kind of like when my father passed away, my father owned his house. He sold his house before he passed away because he said he didn't want me to have to hassle with the house. Right. Mm -hmm. My father was 85. And, and I was just like, he sold it probably, he literally sold it maybe about two or three months before he passed away. I had no idea. My uncle called me and said, you know, your father sold the house. And I was Mm -hmm. like, why would he sell the house? Why would we keep it? We own the house and the land. Like that didn't make any sense. You know, he said he wanted to make it easier on you. And I was like, actually, (laughs) it would have been easier to keep it because now the house would have equity that could be passed on for generations. Even if we didn't keep the house, we could tear the house down. We still got almost an acre of land in the inner city acre of land, not just an acre of land. It it was necessarily prime real estate. And it's because I know my father wasn't probably educated on passing things down you know he didn't leave with any debt like I didn't have to pay any debt off or anything like that it was nothing that he owed you know he didn't put me in a worse financial position passing away as his son um you know but on the same on the same hand it could have been a better financial position for his grandbabies mm-hmm. not necessarily for me because I, I probably wasn't moving back to my hometown but see that house I have a daughter that lives there she could have had that house for the rest of the generations mm-hmm. right? And it was lack of knowledge because I know my father didn't understand how real estate went. He didn't understand that you have the deed. It's yours. We pay taxes on it, but it's yours. And see the rich and the wealthy, they buy properties and they buy houses to give to their children. They, they purposely have things to pass on because they know when they die, it appreciates in value, you know? And a lot of people don't understand that. Like, I didn't understand until later in life because I used to be a person that would rent, you know, rent and have an apartment and, you know, uh, uh, would, would, would do the, the, the rental thing and didn't understand that if I'd have bought the property, you know, when I was 20, 21 years old and went ahead and paid the, you know, whatever the high interest rate was, kept it for 20 years, that hundred thousand dollar property would now be worth half a million dollars. But nobody taught me that. I, and I went to a white university. And they, well, I was about to cuss, they definitely did not teach me uh, about wealth at that university. They taught me diversity because it was an extremely diverse campus, but they did not teach me about wealth. My father didn't teach me that. My uncles, you know, I I didn't learn it for another 20 years. Mm -hmm. And that's where that gap needs to close because Mm -hmm. now we're having people that are making you know, six figure, seven figure, eight figure jobs and eight figure decisions, but none of them are in a position to really make a systemic type change with their capital. Because as we know, I mean, if, if I remember correctly, uh, Bezos, the one billionaire has more money than all the black billionaires combined by himself. Yes. And Van Jones got $100 million from Jeff Bezos. And uh, the other person who is Hispanic, he also got $100 million. Now, what they're supposed to do with that money, they're supposed to forward, pay it forward into charities. And Van Jones has dream, the dream zone. I sent an email to that 
operation. And I hope, and I said, I hope you forward this to Van Jones. He got $100 million. What is he going to do with it? Now, the other guy that got $100 million is Spanish. I know precisely what he's going to do with it. I know exactly what he's going to do with it. Van Jones, on the other hand, Jose Andres. Okay. I know what he's going to do with his. There's no question. What Van Jones does with his, who knows? And the reason I say that, Jose Andres, there's no question that he is going to create riches in his community, in his family. They are not going to miss a beat. Van Jones, on the other hand. Not, not so sure, huh? Not at all. Now, Van yeah. Jones. Will Jose Andres is a chef. He's in my lane. So I already okay. know he's putting up restaurants. I already know. And Van Jones will find somebody Hispanic. He'll find another, somebody else's charity. He won't find us. I know that. Well, Van Jones, I'm going to put a challenge out there to you and all the Van Jones fans to invest in black. How about that? Uh, and, and Right here on the podcast, and this is recorded. You heard it. Absolutely. That is my challenge to him because Jose Andres, he's not going to give not one penny to anybody black. But Van Jones. He's going to invest in himself and his family. Exactly. Van Jones is going to invest in everybody but. And that's what we do because remember, we're taught black and brown. We're taught black and brown. And we constantly, continuously, consistently refer to the struggle, the plight as black and brown. But let me correct you. Brown ain't thinking about you. They'll never, ever consider you in their plight. It ain't going to be about black and brown. It's going to be brown people only. And that you can take to the bank. That comes from the horse's mouth. It has never changed. It's only been black folks that consider black and brown. But let me tell you from the horse's mouth, brown folks consider brown folks. That's it. That's all. Don't go past nothing. That's what they do. And that's what they say. And that's how they are very clear. I've heard it. I see it. I watch it. I work in it. It can't be any clearer. But we're constantly thinking about them. They're not thinking about you. And please don't get it twisted. They're not thinking about you. But we're thinking about them before we think about our own. Hmm. That's an interesting concept. Not a concept. It's a fact. It's a fact. It is a fact. All you have to do is look around. There was a mayor of Los Angeles, Antonio Antonio Villaraigosa, uh-huh. who was the first Hispanic to run the city of Los Angeles. When he was given the opportunity to get to the front lines and protest, Proposition 187, I believe it was. Don't think that he Why was it called Proposition 187? I'm sorry. Going off on the tangent. 187 or 189? Because 187, of course, you know, in police terms, you know, oh, okay. that means murder. That's why I was like, okay. why would they choose then that it, number? <laughs> then it was, 180, it was 189 then. 
But I'm sorry, go ahead. And that was to ensure that Hispanics would be able to get driver's licenses and to be given the opportunities that they wanted in order to stay in California, thus the country. And right after that, there was a movie called A Day Without a Mexican. And at the same time, Mexicans went on strike and they were not going to work their laborers' jobs. They went on strike. The movie A Day Without a Mexican and that day, A Day Without a Mexican. And I want you to know, they did it. The movie was out. They made their point. They did whatever they wanted to do. And Black folks are still sitting around looking like, step and fetch it. But they did it. And Antonio Villa Ragosa, I believe Pat was still in California, in L.A., when that took place. Antonio Villa Ragosa was on the front line. There were over 100,000 Mexicans that walked across the first street bridge in Los Angeles. He was one of them. And yes. He carried, and he carried the banner. He carried mm-hmm. the banner. And he walked across that bridge, the first street bridge. It was televised. The helicopter with the cameras, they televised the whole thing. He left City Hall. He left City Hall and got with his people, his compadres, and walked across that bridge and made a statement. And they continued to make a statement. And and a friend of mine recently had his house remodeled, so to speak. Lots of work done on the house. Who do you think was there doing the work? Every day for two months. Every day. Wasn't anybody that looked like me or you. Every day. For 60, 70 days. Every day. Every day. And most of them, as a matter of fact, none of them spoke English. None, they could say hi, but none of them spoke English. None of them. None of them. But that's what we do. That's what we do. That's what we do. As I told you, Delicious on Crenshaw, it's owned by Hispanics. It's owned by Hispanics. And listen, those folks are, those Black folks are buying, they're buying from them right now as we speak. And it's Hispanics that own that. And have owned it 20 plus years. I mean, but you kind of expect that with black people. We're the biggest consumers in the United States. Yes. We buy from everybody except yes. our own. We don't buy enough from our own for us to to no, form a collective. That's right. And and the fat burgers that you're talking about, there's one on Crenshaw and Slauson and another one down on Crenshaw and Manchester. And Andre, I wouldn't go there if you paid me. Really? Oh, no, honey. No, indeed. Absolutely not. No, indeed. No. No. Well, that's another conversation that we could have. Because, <laughs> you know, the last couple of fat burgers that I've been to have been great. We actually have one here in Texas, in North yes, Texas. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, man, I had a phenomenal experience. And I went to two when I was in California. I cannot remember the locations. Um, I know they were closer to downtown L.A., um, because of the side of LA that I was on, but, uh, man, I had an incredible experience. I wasn't expecting it, you know, um, because at that time when I went to Fatburger, I didn't even know it was black owned, right? I just, uh, knew Fatburger in all honesty from all the hood movies I used to watch in the nineties. 
right? Okay, but and, you know, an incredible experience. What do you mean by that? Um, I went in and the let's see, the the two in California was the young man um that was that took my order in the front because it was so many options. He helped me through the through the options, and it was it wasn't full, but it was it was relatively busy. He took his time to help me through the options. They called out my order, the different changes. And me being the restaurant industry, I, I go with almost everybody's restaurant and analyze their customer service versus their food first. And so I went in and it was, I mean, the, 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 the place was clean. It didn't look like it was new, but, you know, it was clean. The, all the staff was black except for like one person. The, thing, the lady on the grill was Hispanic. And, um, and then I got my food. It was fresh and hot. You know, I said to my table that the bathroom was clean because I always use the bathroom to go to the restaurant. Uh, I actually do that first before I order because if it's dirty, I won't eat there. That's just a habit of mine um, as a chef, because if you don't care about that little small detail, then, you know, I can only imagine what kind of corners you're going to cut with my food. But that's just a personal thing. And uh, man, I had a great experience with both of those fat burgers. I wish I could. I know I got some pictures and I'll tell you where they were. Um, I had a great experience. Then I went to the one here in North Texas. Um, when it first opened and it, it was, it was pretty much about the same thing. And they were, man, they had a line straight out the door and it was black people in the line. And so um, I, I can't say that I've had a bad experience, but I haven't been to, you know, enough fat burgers or I, I, I take that back. I haven't lived in California to go to frat burger pretty frequently, like going to Whataburger here in Texas. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm you know, the, the, the access to it. And so if, if, if your experience, you know, with, with fat burger, especially being black owned with, you know, 79 plus stores in 15 countries, see, that's a stigma that, that, that shouldn't happen because oftentimes in the black community, especially restaurants always get the bad rap of poor customer service because we think the food is going to win. I'm here to tell you people as a chef, the food is not going to win. The food is not going to win. What wins is the customer service. If you got horrible food, they'll give you a second chance if the people were nice. I'm telling you, I've learned. I've been in this industry 27 years now. Andre, I'm glad you said that because I tell people that all the time because there's this kind of a ceiling on how good the food's going to be. But there's no ceiling on service because my wife and I had dinner before we left California. We I uh, had a late dinner in Hollywood somewhere way down on Sunset. I don't remember where, but it was like nine, ten o'clock at night. And we had four waiters because it was very slow. We had a guy standing there just holding the bottle of wine, pouring our wine. Another two guys going to get food. Another guy take and, and it was an awesome experience. Just be, it, I don't even remember the food, but I, I tell you right now, I remember that customer service. So, yes, absolutely. Food can be good and very, very, very good. But then there's going to be somewhat of a ceiling on that food. But that customer service, that's why people will pay $200 a plate to get that level of customer service. Exactly. I mean, these chefs, and including myself, I mean, we sell pretty elegant plates. And some of the plates cost that based on some of the stuff you get. Like there's a restaurant here that does uh, uh, gold-dusted burgers. Um, I can't think of the name of the restaurant, but I, I've cooked with gold and silver dust and some chicken wings and things like that. It's expensive because you pay for it like it's gold, you know, and we charge like it's gold. It's part of the industry, but it's the experience to get the gold wings that people don't worry about. Oh my God, did I really just buy, you know, uh, um, 
six wings for almost, you know, 600 bucks, you <laughs> yeah. know, did I really pay $50 a wing for this? But then when you come out with the presentation on the table, you know, it sparkles, the chef comes out, though the whole experience, you're like, man, you know what? Those $600 wings were worth it. And they taste like any other Buffalo wing. They just got gold on them. Mm-hmm. Right. And for my businesses out there that are listening and for my black people and for, you know, my, my, my entrepreneurs that are out there, man, customer service is most important in any product that you serve and the customer isn't always right, but you have to always make them feel that way. That's the good news you could use today. And your number one client is not the people that come in and pay. It's the people that work for you. I'm saying that again, your number one client is not the people you pay. I mean, not the people that pay you, excuse me. It's the people you pay. It's your staff. Your staff is your number one customer or client. I promise you, if you start focusing in on these people that come to work to make $2 and 12 cent an hour waiting tables, that make $12 an hour to work in your hot kitchen, that make $50,000 a year to be the GM of your restaurant or your establishment. If you start investing more time into them, then you will see a change in your profits and big business gets away from that. They forget that they're, they forget that their staff is their most important client. All they worry about is profits. How many people can I get through the door? How many more people, how many more tickets uh, uh, can I have come out the machine? And they just spit on, step on, put to the wayside, take benefits away, lower Mm -hmm. their wages, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, they forget to care about their number one customer is the one that works in the store. That's why a lot of workers don't care, especially in the fast food industry. They get, you know, for, uh, the people in the fast food industry make the least amount of money and have to deal with a high level of stress. And then you usually have a manager or owner that cares less about you and more about the profit at the end of the day. And they wonder why these businesses are losing money and not getting the kind of money that they want to get. It's because of that. They just don't 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 understand how that works, you know. So um, we're going to continue this discussion next week because it's only a couple minutes left. Miss Colette, I would love to hear your, you know, your final thoughts. But I got to let the next host come into the session. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. So, so always a pleasure to sit in with you, Andre. You've got so much information, and I do believe you need to teach a whole lot of classes on customer service. <laughs> I'm telling you. It oh is. yeah, it's coming. Oh, trust me, it's coming. It's, it's actually part of some of my coaching package. So mm-hmm. for all my wonderful people out there, look for a coach in the food industry. If you're looking for a life coach for your daily plan in life, if you want to achieve anything and live life on purpose, look me up, andreblastinggame.com, LinkedIn, Andre Blastingame, Facebook, Andre Blastingame. I made it real simple. There is no excuse. Google me, Andre Blastingame. You're going to find all that information. So I thank you guys. This has been the Recipe Menu Monday with Mm. Chef Coach Andre Blassingham and my special guests, Kenny and Colette. I thank you guys. I love you guys. I see you next week and continue to be phenomenal. All righty. God bless you. And this is Intentional Talk Radio Network. And don't forget, you can get Andre and all of the hosts on Intentional Talk Radio Network by going to your podcast platforms. Don't forget, Amazon, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and so many more. Don't forget, you can also get us at itrnradio.com. Have a good evening. 
have a good evening. Be safe going home and wear your mask and be cautious out there. And your host, which is uh, Dr. Corliss Bennett, will see you shortly. Have a good afternoon. Take care.